I wanted to mention a, a free resource to you that I think you might find interesting and helpful. Is my website, uh, edwardfudge.com, and included on the website are about seven books, uh, Christian books on the Bible and the Gospel, uh, which I've written, which are all free to read on the website. Plus, it tells about about seven other books that I've written, which are available in book form and, and describes those. Uh, included on the website is a pictorial or, or cyber tour of the Holy Land, which includes about 200 uh, color photographs that we made in 1999 on a two-week tour of Israel and, uh, and Greece and Rome. And included as part of that are about a dozen devotional articles that are written at different locations in the Holy Land, which summarize the significance of that place in the Bible story, and it has pictures along with it. Also on the website is information about a, a weekly ministry that I do called Grace Mail. It goes out three times a week to about 4,000 subscribers in just about every civilized country uh, in all denominations. Uh, this is usually a question-answer session. The person who's the reader writes in a question about the Bible or some spiritual topic or Christian living. And I answered in about three paragraphs. Uh, that's free of charge also. I call the people subscribers who get it, but it doesn't cost anything. And I would be happy to have you join in that little reading group if you're interested in that. Again, www.edwardfudge.com. Uh, feel free to browse anytime, day or night. It's open 24-7. Our, uh, our lesson today on the book of Judges is another one of these uh, very interesting Old Testament books that's quite full of stories. And I thought in the beginning uh, I would give you a couple of paragraphs of Judges in a nutshell that tells us the, the picture of this book in just a few words. And then we'll look at details like we did last week in Joshua. After Joshua's death, the newly settled Israelites come under frequent regional attack by unconquered Canaanites and other near neighbors. The reason, our author explains, is the Israelites' own lack of faithfulness to Yahweh's covenant and their compromise with Baal or Baal worship. Hearing their cries for help when they become oppressed by their enemies, God raises up charismatic warlords who are called judges to rescue the Israelites from their enemies. The more interesting judges are a man named Ehud or Ehud, Ehud Deborah, who's the only woman judge, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson, who is probably better known than any of the others. There are 13 judges in the book of Judges, Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Abimelech, Tola, Jair, Jephthah, Ibzan, Elon, Abdon, and Samson. And some of those names you will quickly forget. Uh, I won't ask you to say them back to me. In the book of 1 Samuel, there are two more judges, Eli, and Samuel, so there are 15 judges in all who are these charismatic leaders, meaning that they rule by a call from God, anointed by His Spirit. They're not part of a dynasty. They're not part of a, of a ruling family or anything like that, like the kings later are. But they rule in regions of Palestine, not over the whole country. At different times, sometimes overlapping each other, between the time of Joshua and the time of the first king, Saul, which comes up in 1 Samuel. Maybe no people disagree on the dates, but the judges period is anywhere from 250 to 400 years, 
which would be any time from the Jamestown colony to before the Declaration of Independence. Uh, well, that's not right. Shortly after the Declaration of Independence, about that time till now. So it's a long period of time with several generations, and it's a time of chaos mostly. The, the Israelites are in the land, but they haven't conquered all of it. They're, they're the unconquered peoples keep causing them trouble. They have little wars here and there all over the place continuously. And yet God continues to deliver them each time they repent and turn back to Him. The book of Judges closes with two stories of conflict among the disunited Israelite tribes. After a man named Micah erects a private shrine at his house and hires a Levite as his private priest, the migrating tribe of Dan attack him and carry the Levite north with them. That's chapters 17 and 18. Then chapters 19 to 21 is a very horrible story that sounds like something Stephen King wrote or something. Some Benjaminites rape and murder another Levite's concubine who then chops her up into 12 pieces and sends her to the tribes of Israel and says, this is what these, these people have done. Come fight against them. And the uh, other tribes attack the offending tribe of, uh, of Benjamin and almost wipe out that tribe entirely, which, which is the end of the book, basically. And it just shows us that in at this era of Judges, it's anything but a settled kingdom. There's not like really one nation. There are 12 independent nations, almost. And we might think of something similar to... Uh, Saudi Arabia before the Saud family took over and united it, or we might think of something like this continent when the Native Americans and different tribes lived in different places and sometimes fought each other. Let's look at the map of uh, the tribes in the land. This is a kind of small print even on the screen, but uh, it shows you the distribution, and at least you can see the lines. Simeon down in the southern part, tribe of Judah just above that, west of the Dead Sea, uh, Ephraim uh, just above there, and uh, also Benjamin is not shown, but is immediately under Ephraim in a very small section, Manasseh, Issachar, Zebulun, Asher by the sea coast, Naphtali by the Sea of Galilee, and on the, on the east side of the Jordan, uh, two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh on the east side of the Jordan. So this is just kind of a general sense of how the tribes are scattered through the land. Next map, this was a time of great tumult in the land of Canaan. Not only are the Israelites moving in from the southeast, which you see the little curved arrow coming up from the southeast there, moving into the land from the southeast, but also there were sea peoples coming from the Aegean across the Mediterranean Mediterranean Sea, settling all over the Mediterranean Sea coast. This included the Philistines who become important in the Bible story, but also some other tribes of Aegean marauders. These sea peoples tried to come down into Egypt, but Ramses III chased them out of Egypt, and they do settle along the coastline and become the Philistines. Their name, Philistine, uh, or in Hebrew, in, in the Semitic languages, was Peleste, became the origin of the word Palestine as a name for this land. It's the land of the Peleste or the Philistines. But the Israelites are not the only ones coming into the land at this time. And the Canaanites, the Gergesites, Hivites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and all those otherites are, uh, are not too happy with people coming in from both sides taking over their country. 
So it's, that's part of this mix of continual warfare. The next map shows us the regional judges. And we may come back to this later. But you see Othniel down at the bottom, uh, at the very top, Shamgar, who was a second judge. On the east side of the Jordan, Jephthah and other names scattered all along. Samson over on the left by the sea where the Philistines live. But the judges are in different parts of the land. And the judges uh, exercise limited control and limited rescue in certain areas. Let's begin with a little bit of the introduction to the book. In the first chapters, there's a general introduction. And I want to just read a, a very small amount out of the first two chapters uh, at this point. In chapter 1, in verse 19, it says, The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people out of the plains because they had iron chariots. And, and uh, so here's one example of they took some of the land, but they don't take all of the land. We say, well, what difference do the iron chariots make? None if God was with them. But because of their sin, God pulled back, and so they were defeated by their enemies. In chapter 1, verse 27, we read that Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan or Tanakh or Dor or Iblim or Megiddo in their settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. In 29, nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites in these other cities. Verse 30, nor did Zebulun. Verse 31, nor did Asher. Verse 33, neither did Naphtali. And so the book sets up this picture of the, of the Israelites living in the land, occupying parts of it, but not really taking possession completely uh, at that time. Joshua in chapter 2, verse 8, is, re, is mentioned again. His death that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And then there is in uh, chapter 2, verses 10, and following this description, which is a capsule again of the book of Judges. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, the ones who knew Joshua, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what He had done for their fathers. And the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals, the Baals, the gods of Canaan. They forsook Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook Him and served Baal and the Ashtaroths. In His anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. And at the end of uh, verse 15, they were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Verse 18, Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, He was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived, for the Lord had compassion on them. Verse 19, But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers. And so we come to the judges, and the first judge in the group is a man named Othniel. He's a nephew of Caleb, who was one of the two faithful spies, along with Joshua, who had come back to Moses and said, we can take the land, God is with us. Othniel uh, is this first judge. In his day, we see the cycle described, which happens over and over again through the book. This is chapter uh, 3 of Joshua at verse 7. 
The Israelites did evil and forgot the Lord. Verse 8, the anger of the Lord burned against them. He sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, whose name means Cushan of double wickedness. In verse 9, they cried out to the Lord and He raised them up a deliverer, Othniel, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came on him and he went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim into the hands of Othniel. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. And so the pattern throughout this book of Judges will be a pattern of the people sinning and forgetting God, of God giving them over to the hands of an oppressor. They cry out in their anguish. God has compassion. He sends a judge with His Spirit upon that judge. The judge delivers them. They do okay for a few years. The judge dies. And they go back into sin. And then the cycle happens all over. So for 250 to 400 years, this is going on all over the land of Canaan among the different tribes. Othniel gives us kind of a pattern. The second judge is a man named Ehud or Ehud. Ehud is an interesting fellow. He's left-handed. And you may or may not know it. If you're left-handed, you may not want to know it. But the Latin word for left is sinister. Because in ancient times, people who were left-handed were considered to be devious. Uh, They fool you. They don't do things the way you expect they will, as Ehud illustrates. Another thing about Ehud that makes his left-handedness interesting is he's from the tribe of Benjamin. And the name Benjamin means son of my right hand. So uh, he's a left-handed guy from the right-handed tribe. Ehud is the one God raises up against a Moabite king by the name of Eglon. Eglon is a very fat king. He probably had a waist of 50 or 60 inches. And there's a reason for coming up with that number, which you may learn about a little bit later here. Uh, Ehud is, is, is picked by the people of his tribe to go carry their tribute to Eglon at a certain time the tribute was due. Ehud, being left-handed, wore his sword on his right side under his garment. Normally it would be under the left side with a right-handed person. He had an 18-inch, two-edged sword. So he goes and takes the tribute to King Eglon, the gigantic fat king of Moab. And after he's delivered the tribute, Ehud says to the servants, You go away, I have a secret message for the king. And the king escorts him or has him escorted up to the king's upper chamber in his summer palace. And all the servants go out and they shut the door and lock it. Ehud comes over to the king and says, I have a message for you from the Lord. And he reaches to his right hand side with his left hand, pulls out his 18 inch dagger, sticks it into the king's stomach so deeply that the fat covers over the handle of the sword and the the other end, the sharp end, sticks out the king's back. And it's not a pretty picture. The Bible says the dirt came out. But at any rate, uh, Ehud does this and delivers the Israelites from that king. He then shuts the door, locks it, makes his escape. And he's long gone when the king's servants come and say, why isn't the king coming out of his bedroom? And one of them says, he may be relieving himself. Let's wait a little while. So they wait a decent time and they're embarrassed and they go in to see and the king is there dead with a sword stuck through him. Well, these were not really nice times and polite people. But And they played rough, but it's, uh, it's one of the ways that the, God delivered the people at that particular occasion. The next king is uh, Shamgar. He's a minor, I'm sorry, not king, judge. He's a minor judge. As far as the Bible's mentioned, only one verse about him. Shamgar delivered the people from the Philistines 
And all we know about him is he killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad, a sharp stick they poked oxen with, and he killed 600 Philistines. After Shamgar comes Deborah. Deborah is the only woman judge. Throughout the book of Judges, women play prominent roles, even though she's the only woman judge. If you keep your ears attuned, you'll hear about some other women as we go along, some of them who are great heroines, some of them who are not so great people who get the hero in trouble. But Deborah is a judge. When we say judge, we think about a person sitting behind a bench who hears cases and makes judicial determinations and decisions. That's not what these judges were. They were more like what we would call warlords. But Deborah is the exception. She actually was a judicial judge, and she sat, it says, under a particular tree and had her bench there, and the people came and had their cases decided. Deborah has a word from the Lord to deliver the people from a particular Canaanite king by the name of Jabin, who is king of the northern city called Hazor which is the one in their book of Joshua we said had been called the New York City of Canaan. The Israelites had burned it earlier, but apparently it's been rebuilt, and now Jabin is king there. Jabin is oppressing the Israelites for a good many years all around his territory. He has a captain of his army by the name of Sisera, who's leading the armies of Jabin, the Canaanite, from Hazor against the Israelites. Deborah goes to a man of Israel by the name of I had to look. Jabin and Sisera, Barak, Barak, or today he would be called Barak. But uh, Barak is the is the Israelite man, and Deborah goes to him and says, "God says you're to take the armies of Israel and deliver the people from the hand of Jabin." Barak says, "I won't go unless you go with me, Deborah." And Deborah says, "Okay, I'll go with you, but because you wouldn't go when God told you to." You will not have the honor of this victory, but a woman will. That's some, some good women's stories back here, I tell you. And so uh, she instructs she instructs Barak to go take the armies of Israel. I think he has about 100,000 men. And they go up to Mount Tabor and occupy the mountainside, which gives them a good view of the opposing army. The armies of Sisera come into the valley below them and are going to do battle against them. The army of Barak attacks Sisera's army, soundly defeats them, sends them scurrying, and it appears from chapter 5 of the book of Judges in the Song of Deborah that maybe God helped them with some miraculous nature events such as heavy rains that caused Sisera's chariots to bog down in the mud and maybe hailstones from heaven as we had had in another story in Joshua. But Sisera sees that his army is defeated and he takes off by himself looking for escape. He comes to the tent of a woman by the name of Jael, J-A-E-L. Deborah's name, by the way, means honeybee. Jael's name means mountain goat. And so uh, he comes to the tent of the mountain goat and he says, uh, let, let me come in. She says, please come in, you can hide here. She belongs to a tribe called the Kenites who are friends of the Israelites from earlier times, but not Israelites themselves. Uh, Jael welcomes him in, puts him down on the ground, and covers him with something to hide him. And in a little while, Sisera says, I'm thirsty, would you please give me a drink of water? And instead, she goes and gets a skin of goat's milk, probably goat's milk. It says milk. 
And she gives him this likely warm milk, which puts him to sleep. And while he's asleep, she takes a tent peg and a hammer and drives it through his temple into the ground on the other side and goes out. And about that time, Sisera comes up, who's, uh, I'm sorry, not Sisera, about that time, Barak comes up, who's the captain of the Israelite armies. And she says, your enemy is in here. And he comes in and looks, and sure enough, there, there he is, dead. And so the woman got the glory for killing the enemy of Israel. Chapter 5 of Judges, is a, the entire chapter is a song that Deborah composed and sang commemorating this victory. And I just want to read about three verses from verses 19 and 20, 21, maybe 22, to give you a flavor of this ancient, ancient poetry. It reminds me when I read it of something like Beowulf. And it's, it's maybe one of the oldest original compositions in the Old Testament, which was passed down and included in the book of Judges when it was written. It says, Kings came, they fought, the kings of Canaan fought at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo, but they carried off no silver, no plunder. From the heavens the stars fought, from their courses they fought against Sisera. The river Gashon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Gashon, march on, my soul, be strong. Then thundered the horse's hoofs, galloping, galloping, go his mighty steeds. And the whole chapter is this kind of poetry. But it commemorates the victory of Deborah through the woman jail over, over the, the enemy of Israel. This land of Israel has been called the land of milk and honey. And in this case, the, enemy, the enemies are defeated by Deborah, whose name means honeybee, and Jael, whose name means mountain goat, from which comes the milk. After Deborah comes Gideon. Gideon is one of the better known stories. Gideon's father was a man named Manoah. His mother, before he was born, before she conceived him, was barren. One day when the mother is going about her business, an angel of the Lord appears to the mother and says, You're blessed by the Lord. God will give you a son. And he will be a very special son. He's not to drink any wine or eat any raisins or grapes. He will be a Nazarite, vowed to the Lord for all of his life, and his hair and beard are never to be cut. And she's impressed by this. She tells her husband, Manoah. Manoah says to his wife, we should ask, we should pray that this messenger of the Lord will come again so we can ask him how we should raise the boy. And so the angel comes back a second time and appears to Manoah and his wife. Manoah says, how shall we raise the boy? And the angel says, when he's born, he will be a Nazarite. You should not, he should not have any wine or strong drink. You should not cut his hair and God will be with him. His spirit will be upon him. Manoah goes and gets a sacrifice and builds an altar. Or not builds an altar, brings a sacrifice out and is about to put it before the angel as an as a offering of something to eat. And the angel reaches out his staff, shepherd's staff, and touches the food with the end of the staff, and the flame comes out and burns up everything. And in the, in the fire, the angel goes up in the fire to heaven. I'm sorry, I had that two, two stories mixed up there. He doesn't touch it and start the fire. Manoah builds an altar and offers a sacrifice, and as the fire is going up, the angel goes up with the fire into heaven. Gideon is born as the angel had prophesied, and he is a Nazarite. His hair is not ever cut, his beard is not ever shaved, and so forth. But as he grows up, he's not a really what we would call faithful servant of God. 
Which is an interesting point for us, I think, because in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, when the author is naming all the Old Testament people as heroes of faith, he also includes Samson and Gideon. You know, I keep jumping over to Samson here. I'm sorry. Forget everything I said in that last paragraph. I just completely jumped gears from Gideon to Samson. The whole thing was about Samson. Everything I said about Gideon was wrong. (laughs) I hope this makes you feel better. (laughs) The only part about Gideon that was true is that his birth is prophesied. (laughs) Gideon is born. He comes along. The Midianites are... uh, you know, that's not even true. That's Samson also. <laughs> Philip, fire the teacher and start over. Let's start all over. Forget everything I said about Gideon. That was all Samson. Gideon is in the time when the Midianites, who live over across the Jordan on the east side, have come over and oppressed the people. They, they're a marauding raiding band, and they use a con- confederation of Ammonites and otherites to help them raid the Israelites. And every time when the Israelites have har- are about to harvest their crops, these invaders come in and steal everything. And so instead of harvesting his grain on the top of a hill where they would usually have a threshing floor, Gideon is hiding in a wine press threshing his wheat so nobody will see him. An angel of the Lord does come, that much is true, and appears to Gideon and says, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon looks around and says, if the Lord is with us, why are we in such a mess? Maybe we felt that way sometimes too. And the angel says, no, God is with you. He will be with you. He's chosen you to deliver your people. Gideon says, I'm from the least family of the least tribe. Surely you must have the wrong man. The angel says, no, call together an army of Israelites and God will give you, give the Midianites into your hand. And so Gideon blows a trumpet, he calls an army, 32,000 men come from the tribes of Israel. God says, nope, too big an army. If they conquer their enemies, they'll say they did it, they won't give me the credit. Tell all of them who are scared to go home. And 22,000 go home. 10,000 are left. God says, still too many people. We've got to narrow this down some more. Take them down to the creek and have them all get a drink of water. Some of them got down and lapped up water in their hands like this. Others got down on all fours and licked it up with their tongues. There were 300 who did that. God says, keep the 300, send everybody else home. So Gideon now has 300 men for his army. Uh, he, he, he takes his 300 men who get the lamps, lanterns, and trumpets of all the others who were there to start with, and they go and basically surround the Midianite camp. God says to Gideon, if you're afraid, go down and listen to their conversations during the night. So Gideon takes one of his uh, friends with him and goes down and listens outside the camp of the Midianites. He hears a Midianite soldier saying to another one, I had a dream. In my dream, a giant loaf of bread rolled down the hill into our camp and hit a tent and flattened it. And the other one says, that must be a sign that God is going to deliver us into the hands of Gideon, who is the Israelite. And Gideon is encouraged by this message, so he goes back to his army still in the middle of the night, divides them into three groups, a hundred each in three places. He says to them, when you hear my trumpet blow, all of you break your pitchers that had the lamp inside of it, hold up your lamp, blow on your trumpet, and shout in unison the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. 
And so they do this, and when they do it, the army of the Midianites sees lights everywhere, assumes these are only the leaders of groups of soldiers. They think they must be hopelessly outnumbered. They go into panic. They start killing each other, and their army is decimated that way, and the Israelites don't have to do anything except chase them. And so they do chase them out of the land. The people of Gideon's area come to him and say, we would like to make you our king, like the people wanted. some people wanted to do George Washington after he delivered the colonies from the British. Gideon says, no, I will not be your king. My sons will not be your king. Yahweh, Jehovah, God is your king. And he turns down the invitation. And the people had peace as long as Gideon lived, and then Gideon died, and they go back into sin. One of Gideon's sons named Abimelech, whose name means my father is king, decided he would like to be king when his father wouldn't be. So he goes to his town, Shechem, in central Palestine, and he says, I would like to be your king, and they make him their king. Another brother who had escaped his massacre of his brothers, Gideon had 70 sons and quite a few concubines, and, uh, and, and Abimelech murdered all of his brothers except one who got away by the name of Jotham. Abimelech, when he's made king, uh, word gets out to Jotham who comes back to the people, stands up on the side of a mountain where they can't get to him and shouts out to them and says there was a, a, a time when the trees of the forest wanted a king. And they went to a thorn bush. Or first they go to a, a, an olive tree. And they say, will you be our king? And the olive tree says, no, I should be giving oil for you to, be, to benefit by. I don't have time to be your king. They go to a fig tree and say, will you be our king? And the fig tree says, no, I have to make figs for you to eat. I can't be your king. And they go to a thorn bush, and the thorn bush wants to be their king. And Jotham says, that's what you've picked as your king, a thorn bush. And if he's good for you, then God is with it. If he's not, he's not. And you decide for yourselves. Well, Abimelech turns into a very ruthless fellow. He starts attacking his own people, trying to conquer other little towns. Eventually, as he's approaching one town, a woman in a tower, here's another woman, throws a millstone out of the tower and crushes him. He's fatally wounded, mortally wounded, but not dead. He says to his bodyguard, stick your sword through me and kill me. I don't want it to be said I was killed by a woman. And these old Israelite men had a lot of hang-ups about being more important than women. I'm glad none of that's around anymore today. But uh, that's Abimelech. Then come Tola and Jair. There's not much to say about them. Jair had 30 sons who ruled 30 cities and rode on 30 donkeys. And that's about all we know about him. Then comes Jephthah. Jephthah is a, a son of a prostitute who when he was born, his brothers rejected. And when he's old enough, they drive him out of the house. Later, when the people are uh, attacked by the Philistines and the Ammonites, the brothers come to Jephthah and say, will you be our, our deliverer? And Jephthah says, why should I? You chase me away from home. They say, now we need you. Kind of like de Gaulle in Second World War. So he comes back, takes over the leadership of the army, and on his way to the battle, he says to God, if you will give me the victory... I will sacrifice to you as a burnt offering the first thing that comes out of my house to meet me when I return home, which was a very stupid and foolish vow. He probably thought it would be a sheep or a dog or a camel or something like that. He returns home, and here comes his little girl running out of the house whom he loves. It's his only child. But he says, I made a vow. I cannot break it. 
I have to offer her as a burnt offering. She's old enough that she says, uh, Father, I'm, I will never marry. I'm a virgin. Give me two months to go with my girlfriends into the mountains uh, with them, and then I'll come back. She comes back, and the Bible says he did what he said he would do, which some scholars think means he sacrificed her as a burnt offering. Other scholars believe that it's really a metaphor, and it, and it just means he kept her a virgin all her life, and she never married, which to her would have been a disgrace. But this is a very bad situation. And yet even Jephthah is named in Hebrews 11.